journey through Isaiah. I just turn it on. It takes a second. I'm probably loud enough without it, but then it doesn't get recorded and there's nobody can listen online. So we look at Isaiah chapter 17. If you remember from last time, every single book of the prophets has what's called an oracle of the nations. So we're in the middle of the oracle of the nations, which in essence is several prophecies dealing with the reality that all the nations, it's not just Israel that's going to find themselves under judgment. Okay, so, so the idea is that there's nowhere to run. There's no, there's no place else to go for salvation. Does that make sense to everyone? The, the thing that, that, that the prophets are all trying to get across to all the people is there's nowhere else to run to. There's no place to go for salvation other than to the Lord. If you run to Egypt, if you run to Assyria, if you run to Babylon, it doesn't matter where you go. We can, you know, when, uh, when, uh, President Trump won the election, there's a lot of people gonna leave, right? But what God's point is, it doesn't matter where you go. Run to Europe, run to Mexico, run wherever you wanna run. Judgment day, someday for everybody. There's no other place, no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's his name. It's coming to him. And one of the concepts that we, that I'm trying to get across, and I, I don't know if I'm doing it well or not, but one of the ideas that we try to get across is the idea that God as our maker, we owe something to. And we all can acknowledge that in our own lives, right? If we have authority over another being, whether it's our children or our pets or animals that we care for, or whatever, there, there is a, sense that we even have in our relationship with them of of uh, wanting to be respected honored where do we think that comes from you see stardust that just bumps into each other that just happens because of random occurrence doesn't come with it built in this this desire for honor and if we have a desire to honor those in authority over us or to be honored by those beneath us where do we think that originated Really? Why would, why do amoeba care? But they wouldn't. But the Bible would tell us that the characteristics of God, there's actually a term for it in theology that are his communicable attributes. That means the things that God has that, that he has bestowed on us. In Genesis, what did it say? We're created in whose image? God's image, right? So there are communicable attributes, attributes from God that we should reflect in our life we have moral codes we don't know where those things come from we can't justify them we we want to say there's some type of a social construct but reality is those moral codes came long before any social concept we have we 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 have justification for morality in life because god is a moral god we have the comprehension of love and language and communication. We have the idea of logic and mathematics. Where does all that come from? It doesn't come from stardust. Stardust doesn't care. But beings who have been created and bestowed by their maker with, how does the, how is it, the Bill of Rights puts it, certain inalienable rights? Where do we come up with those concepts? They come from our maker. And they, they are evidence, according to Romans chapter 1, of the truth of God. Now we can choose to ignore it and continue the rebellion, but what God wants 
the people to understand in the oracle to the nations, the prophet sending the word of God out to the nations. It wasn't just Israel. Israel wasn't the only one who got this. These went to all the kings, all the different nations we're going to talk about. That word that went forward is God saying, there's salvation nowhere else but with me. You're not, no one's safe in their rebellion. No one's safe in their corruption. No one's safe in their fallen state. But we can be made safe if we come to Israel. Now, if we come to the Lord. The idea was brought out last time that how did they come to the Lord in the Old Testament? When their nation was conquered, where did they go? They came, yeah, they ran to Judah. Save us, save us. Where are they running to? Don't lose the sight. It's not just them running to a nation. When you went to another nation, you were submitting yourself to that nation's God. You guys understand? So when they would run to Judah, basically they're saying, our gods couldn't save us. And when we get to the end of this section of Isaiah, when we get to 38, 39, uh, we're going to see God do exactly what he's been promising all this time through the prophet Isaiah. So tonight we find ourselves, we're going to talk about Syria and Ephraim, and then kind of um, a, a, a oracle that speaks to the whole world. So that's where we'll be looking today. In Isaiah chapter 17, we'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, an oracle concerning Damascus. Damascus. So this is Syria. Damascus, one of the oldest cities known to mankind, still is in existence today. Uh, if you come with us to the Holy Land, you'll stand outside of Abraham's gate, a gate that Abraham walked through, which goes all the way back to Genesis, I want to say 14. That's pretty far back in the Bible, right? So you can stand outside of Abraham's gate, looking toward Damascus and say, out of this gate, Abraham walked. Not somebody like him, not a place like this. This is the place the Bible talks about in Genesis 14. So Damascus was there. Now you have an oracle concerning Damascus. Damascus is the most um, prominent city of Syria, right? The, the uh, um, capital of Syria. So we have an oracle concerning Damascus. Uh, first three verses are going to focus on them. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The city of Aror are deserted. They will be for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid. The flocks, the sheep will stay there. There's not going to be anything scary. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. So remember, at this time when Isaiah is prophesying, Israel's divided into two. Now we experienced something like that in our history, right? We had a civil war. It was north against south. The same way in Israel... There was a civil war. They were divided north against south. The north took the title Israel, and God often refers to them as Ephraim, because Ephraim becomes the 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 culminating uh, tribe through which the northern kingdom rules, and they rule from a place called Samaria. Everybody's heard that before, right? So they're going to rule from from Samaria. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Uh, it is oftentimes referred to as Judah, sometimes referred to as Israel. The reality is, in the north and south, when the United States divided, there were people on both sides of that line, right? 
So it's not all just one kind of people one place, another kind of people the other place. The people who agreed with the South, when we had our Civil War, where did they go? They went south. The people who agreed with the north, where'd they go? North, right? So, so that, and you end up with brother against brother. Yes? Uh, same exact thing with Israel. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel is wicked. Uh, God, in fact, when they divided, God told the king of the northern kingdom, he said, look, if you will honor me, I'll honor you, and I'll, I'll, I'll let your family continue to rule in the north. And in response to what God told Jeroboam, Jeroboam said, yeah, we're going to go back to the golden calf. Everybody remember the golden calf? So he put a golden calf in the northern part of Israel because he was afraid that the people who wanted, if they continued to worship Yahweh, the people who wanted to worship down in Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom, wouldn't come back. So he didn't trust what God said. They went to idolatry, and as a result... They stay in idolatry their entire history. And this judgment, the judgments that we've been reading about over the nations, which is the kingdom of Assyria ultimately coming. Assyria is going to take Damascus, going to take Syria, going to take the whole known world at that time. And part of that known world that they're going to conquer is Israel. Now, when they conquer Israel, Israel's to the north. They're not going to stop. They're going to keep coming to Judah. That's why this whole section of the Oracle of the Nations and this first half of the book of Isaiah is a call to Judah to trust God. So Judah makes a choice to trust God. And when we get to that part of the, of the book in the 30s, we're going to see because Judah trusted God, God's going to miraculously deliver them from Assyria. So God's showing all the nations, if you come to me, I can save. You guys kind of get what's going on? So as we look at it, Damascus is saying, Damascus, you're going to fall. There's no, you can't save yourself. You can't save yourself from what's going on. And he says, you're going to become like Israel. So Israel's going to find themselves conquered. The Assyrians are going to take away Israel captive. They're going to leave behind the poor of every nation that they've conquered in the northern kingdom of Israel, they're all going to settle and intermarry in a place called Samaria. And at the time of Jesus, the Jews do what? They don't like them, right? The Jews hate the Samaritans. Why? What do they call them? They're half-breeds, right? They're Jews who have bred with all these other nations. They've got their own scriptures. They've got their own style of worship. They have turned away from the, from the point and purpose that God had given to the, to the nation of Judah. And so that division is going to continue all the way to the time of Christ. Now, did Christ hate the Samaritans? Right? Chapter 4 of John, what does Jesus say? i got to go to Samaria, right? To do what? Meet a woman at the well. We remember the story? i got, I got to meet the woman at the well. There was a division with Jericho. And, and Jesus also says, i got to go to Jericho. For what? There's a short guy, tax collector. I got to meet him, right? Jesus, Jesus, the point that God has all throughout his scripture is saving the nations, is bringing salvation to the world. In John chapter 3, right? What does it say? For God so loved the world, right? That he gave. So the idea, we see it here, even in the prophecies, as these prophecies are going out to the nations. So, there's nowhere to run. You can't, you can't be saved anywhere else. You gotta to come to me. So he picks it up again in verse four. And in that day, 
the glory of Jacob. So now he's turned from Assyria, I'm sorry, from Syria and Damascus, saying Assyria is going to conquer you. Now he's looking at Israel, which is just south of, uh, of Damascus. And he says in verse 4, And in that day the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reapers uh, gather standing grain, and, and his arm harvests the ears, and as when one gleans the ear of grain in the valley of Rephaim. So he's saying it's going to be like harvest day. There's going to be this conquering. Assyria is going to come through, and the only thing that's going to be left is what the, what the harvesters leave for the poor. See, the Bible taught that when a man went through and harvested his field, he could only go through one time. So they would go through and pick. I love that Idaho does this with potatoes. Right? They go through, they harvest potatoes, and then what can we all do? Grab a shovel and a bucket. And you can dig out potatoes that didn't make the grade all day long. Right? Fill up as many five-gallon buckets as you want. The same way in Israel. The poor, if no matter what it was, grain, corn, whatever they grew... They would come through afterwards, the poor. This was the welfare program, and they could gather up what had been left. So they had to leave the corners alone of their field. They left the corners alone and one time through. The pickers make one trip. If it dropped on the ground, it stayed on the ground. And then the poor could come through and get it. So what the Lord is saying, when Assyria comes through, it's going to be like that happened, only for the whole nation. Now all that is going to be left is what was being left traditionally for the poor in verse 6 it says gleanings will be left in it as when an olive tree is beaten two or three berries in the highest part of the bough four or five in the branches of a fruit tree declares the lord god of israel the idea is it's there's not a total devastation or destruction god doesn't leave them with nothing it's not the point is not to utterly wipe out the peoples what's the point To kick out all those things that are propping them up. What is it that we prop ourselves up with? Because God says, I want to be what you're propped up with. I want your faith, your hope, your trust in me. Yeah? I want your hope to be in me. So whatever things we're hoping in, whatever those things are around us, God is saying to the world, I'm going to allow those things to be kicked out. Because I don't want you to trust in anything that doesn't save. Because what happens to you as an individual in the world who learns to trust in everything but God? What happens at the end? And the Bible says, God, God says, I have no glory in the destruction of the wicked. I don't glory in the fact that the wicked finally got judgment day. God says, I glory when the wicked repent and live. So he allows these things. These things are not... These things that enter into our life are not meant to destroy, but meant to drive us to Him. We get to make a choice, right? Maybe I'm trusting in things I shouldn't be trusting in. I need to put my <clears throat> my faith and trust in Him because He saves. That's the message that He's laying out for us. So why? Why is it that they that they are are seeing this judgment? Well, He's going to tell us, beginning in verse seven, they've forgotten God. They don't know him. Two things that God says in Hosea, Hosea that he wants. Our faithful love, and he wants us to know God. Right? He, he wants us to know him. So we want to come to that place. What well, he's saying in Isaiah 7 through 11, you've forgotten me. I've, I've been, I'm left out. 
I'm left out. You still have rituals, but, but it really has nothing to do with me anymore. You, you still have sacrifice. It has, has nothing to do with me anymore. You're, you're just punching a card, right? So nobody wants a relationship like that. Why is it that you and I, when we look at a relationship with another uh, person, that we don't honor betrayal? How does it work out that that happened? Do we really think that's just accidental? Or is that just another communicable attribute from God? Being created in God's image, reflecting who He is. Reflecting what God is about. It says in verse 7, In that day man will look to his Maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He won't look at the altars or the works of their hands. He will... Uh, not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. He's saying in that day when all that stuff's fallen down, nobody runs to the altar that they carved out. They don't do it. They either shake their fist at God or they turn to God. But they, everybody does the same thing. Everybody, I don't care what what crazy stuff they got rolling around in their head, that's where people run when when the things that are propping us up fall out they run to him he says in that day their strong cities will be like deserted places the wooded heights and the hilltops which they deserted because of the children of israel and there will be desolation he's saying that in those days when when things get thin when they don't have the the crops that they need to have to eat when they're struggling with with life and they're struggling then man looks for a savior. Otherwise, he don't. People say, well, man, how can a good God allow a, a, a tidal wave to kill 100,000 people in Indonesia? You guys remember that? I don't remember how many years ago it was. Over 100, that's the highest death toll I've ever heard of in my life. Over 100,000 dead. And everybody assumes that's an evil act by a hateful God, if there even is a God. And I would say it's not. It's a loving act by a loving God. And how do you know what those people did when the water came and washed them out to sea? How do you know where they lifted their eyes? How do you know what the cry of their heart was? And if the cry of their heart was to a God who is willing to save for anyone who would call out to him... And eternally, God saved people in that place. Are you, are you really going to say that it's not worth it? It would be better for them to spend an eternity in hell? Or an eternity with the Lord? I don't know. I don't know what they did or didn't do. I just know, if you kick out the kickers that are propping me up, there's one place I go. And my heart is wicked, just as wicked as anybody else in the world. And I've been, I've sat at so many bedsides while people are dying. I've been in so many places where people are leaving the earth. And I can tell you, not all, because some people's hearts are so hard and, and angry at God that they will not turn. But that's not everybody. That's not everybody. The vast majority are looking for answers. Are looking for hope. And in the end... Those people aren't running to their buddies to go drink. They're coming here. Saying, I'm going to die. What do I do? So the, 
This is the way man ticks. This is how he works. And if these are the things that have to enter into my family's life, my children's life, or or the world around us in order for people to look up to their salvation, then let it rain. Let it come. Do I really think me and my finite knowledge can understand what God is accomplishing and what God is doing? He's saying here, you guys aren't going to go to your idols. You're not going to run to all those other things. In that day, in that moment, you're going to, you're going to lift your eyes up. So why, why is this, this desolation coming? Look at verse 10. Why is this desolation coming? For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Don't remember. Didn't take man very long. Man had forgotten God by Genesis chapter 7. Started probably in Genesis chapter 6. Man was created in Genesis 2. He screwed up in 3. He was corrupted in 6. He rebelled in 10. The flood came in 7. You guys get that it doesn't take us very long to forget. Can, can we recognize that in the real world? How, how long does it t- take us to forget? How many people in our life, how many friends that we have that we said, you know, at one, I'm never going to forget you guys. There are guys in the, I was with in the Marine Corps, in the mud and the blood all over the place, and I swore I'd never forget. Now I'm an old man, and I don't remember. I, I remember faces maybe, but I'm, I have forgotten. The people I thought I would never forget. Stories I thought would always be with me. The Lord says, you've forgotten me. The God of your salvation. Yeah, by, by chapter 3, God's forgotten. <laughs> chapter 1, he made Adam. Chapter 3, he forgot him. Chapter 4, he remembers him. Chapter 6, he forgets him again. Chapter 7, he remembers him. Chapter 10, he forgets him again. You guys get the pattern? So God's saying, you've forgotten me, the God of your salvation. You don't remember the rock of your refuge. The idea, the picture of the rock of your refuge. You guys, guys have all seen that, that picture, right, of the, of the uh, uh, light, uh, lighthouse and the waves breaking all around it. But the lighthouse don't move, right? Because it's on the rock, right? So it don't go anywhere. So, so it may be a scary place to be when the big wave comes around. But at least you know, if I'm, if I'm holding on to the rock, I'm still on the rock. The point is that when we're holding on to the Lord, we're stable. But anything else we're holding on to, we're not. If what we're holding on to is good health or a healthy retirement or time or whatever, those, that's all props. Those things can all go away. But the rock of our refuge, he doesn't go away. He doesn't go away. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow all the day that you plant them and make the blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. How many people have experienced that where they've, life's going on as normal and everything's good and everybody's, you know, everything's good and man, life's good. And in one day, one phone call, the whole thing comes crashing down. 
And if it takes us down, the point wasn't God trying to take us down. The point is God showing us, you're not standing on me. You're standing on something else. And everything else won't hold. And God doesn't diminish it. He calls it the day of grief and incurable pain. He's not pretending that it's not hurtful, that it's not hard, that it's not difficult, that you shouldn't feel it. God never gets gets mad at Job in the book of Job and says, Job, you shouldn't feel pain. What's wrong with you? You should pretend to be happy all the time. God never tells him that. The only, the only grief God gives Job is when Job pretends like he can, he's going to make God stand in the docks and give account for why he's done what he's done. And when Job gets his five minutes in front of God, you know what he says? Job's, Job does the smartest thing he did in the whole book. He puts his hand over his mouth. And he said, I'm done. All he had to do was see him. And when he saw him, when he saw God, all that stuff went out the window. Because he, he recognizes, I need to stand on you. All those things that people say about God, when they look at God and they say, well, God is arrogant and he's, he's, he's got all these things that he wants and they're ridiculous. John Piper is a genius because he said, that's only true if it's, that's only true of God, that he's arrogant, that he's prideful, that he's all these things, if what he says isn't true. What if God really is the end all, beat all, greatest thing ever and just by seeing him, Everything else that you freak out about just goes away. And you think, there's so much value just in seeing God. What if he really is what he says he is? What if he really is the most glorious, the most incredible, the most... What if all that's true? Well, then all the things God says would make sense, wouldn't it? Because he, he wants us to know that this is real. I really am all that. And your relationship with me, when you see me face to face, man, Paul says all these present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed. He says, when I see God, I'm not going to worry about none of this stuff because I'll have him. Can we recognize God as that treasure? He's saying, you're going to plant, you're going to sow, all these things are going to happen, but in one moment it all goes away. Do we know that's true? I know that's true. I've, I've probably learned that lesson five or six times in life. Right? Just one phone call. In an instant. Everything that we think, everything that we hope, everything that we know goes away. In Hosea 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, God always thought of Israel as his firstborn. So God would call the nation as his firstborn. Because when all the nations rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 10. All the nations say, we don't want you, God. Then God said, I'm going to make my own nation. So he said to Abraham, go to a place that I will show you. You guys remember the story? And Abraham said, okay, I'm going to go. So, so God says, I'm going to call this my firstborn. Israel's my child. So when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of the world. Egypt's a picture of the world, right? It's going to be a prophecy later on about Jesus. But, but here in Hosea, he's saying... I called them out of the world. The world that's in rebellion against me, I called and Abraham came. I, I, I 
brought Abraham forth. But then he says this in verse 2 of Hosea 11, But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. God says the more... Paul actually says in the New Testament a similar thing, but God says the more I loved you, the more you went away. The more I wanted you, the more you went other places. The more you turned your back. Matthew 23, 37, listen to Jesus' words. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. Stones those who have been sent to it. How often I've wanted to gather your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. What's the next line? But you were not willing. Now, the same thing he says of Jerusalem, he could say of every city in the world, couldn't he? Absolutely could. You substitute Buell in there. Buell, with the exception of we haven't killed his prophets only because they're not here. But if they were, (laughs) we'd kill them. We We have the same problem that all mankind has, don't we? Is our heart somehow different than the rest of mankind? Jeremiah says our heart is deceitful, so it lies, and desperately wicked. That's not good. What makes our heart good? When you ask Jesus Christ to live there, right? Then that hard-hearted bitterness becomes what Paul would write in, in Corinthians. Don't you know that your body is the temple of God? That you are the house that God lives in? And our lives are transformed by him coming and being a part. So he's laying out this idea, hey, you guys have forgotten me. You've forgotten me in the rock of your refuge. And in a moment, something happens and you'll, you'll remember. Now he's going to turn in chapter 17, end of chapter 17, and the rest of chapter 18. And he's going to say a judgment on the whole nation. I've heard some, I don't know if you guys know this and... Maybe I'll make, I don't think there's anybody here I can make mad, but maybe I will. Um, a lot of people will find in this next section a prophecy that they try to tie to the United States. So I want to be as clear as I can be. There are no prophecies about the United States in the Bible. Anywhere. We are not on the radar. We are incur. we are covered under God's looking at the whole world, because he's going to look at the whole world right here. And we, last I checked, we're part of the whole world, right? But we have this arrogance that somehow we're so great that the Bible speaks about us, but it ignores, you know, the Ottoman Empire, or the British Empire. Or, yeah, that's just plain old American arrogance. Let it die. We're not as important as we think we are. <clears throat> All right, everybody okay? I hope so. You're going to hear one. If, you, if you're a Missler fan, you're going to hear one that Missler pointed to. And so he says in verse 12, here's where he turns his attention to the rest of the world. All the thunders of many people, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. All the roar of the nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them and they will flee far away, chased like chaff. How does God see all these beastly nations that Daniel talks about? You make a lot of noise, but you blow away like the chaff. 
Is that not true of history? Isn't that what happens to the kingdoms of men? Make a lot of noise, and you may even make a lot of noise for a long time. But in the end, most people don't remember the Ottoman Empire. A few remember the British Empire. A few more years, they'll forget it. Some remember the Roman Empire, but nobody really is threatened by Rome today, are they? Because they all blow away like the chaff. Chase like chaff on the mountains before the wind, whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. So in the beginning, everybody's afraid. Before morning, they are no more. They don't last. There's only one kingdom that's eternal. Whose kingdom is eternal? God's kingdom. Ever since men rebelled, all the way back in Genesis chapter 10, under Nimrod. And Nimrod said, I'm going to make my own seed of God. You remember, he built a ziggurat, a tower. He said, I'm going to build my throne up into the heavens. We remember the story? We don't need God. We, we, are, we are going to take care of it all ourselves. Ever since that moment, the cry of mankind hasn't changed. Every nation feels the same way. We don't need God. We got this. We've got this all figured out. And so we are sure that our, ours is finally going to be the kingdom that lasts. Our kingdom will last. We're on the decline. We haven't even been around 200 years. We don't even have things that Israel considers antique in the United States. Do you know that? We talk about our antiques. Israel just says those are just a little old. Israel digs stuff up that's a thousand years old. We dig stuff up that's, you know, a hundred years old and we're so excited. If our cars, we call it a classic if it's 30 or 40 years old, right? I got a classic. In Israel, they're like, no, that's just junk. A classic, you know, that's 500 years old. Antique, that's a thousand years old. So we have these ideas. In, in the spring of 1942... Who would have believed in three years, Germany and Japan would literally be nothing? But in 1942, they were taking over the world. Here today, gone tomorrow. That's the kingdoms of men. The, the example that God is laying out for us is, look, we're all fading away. Before morning, they are no more. This is a por- the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Isaiah is saying, yeah, these, the nations, Assyria is going to conquer. Babylon's going to conquer. Rome's going to conquer. But they're conquered too. Because we're all equal. We're all in the same state. We're all broken. We all need a Savior. We all need God to save us. And if we come to that realization... There is salvation. We shake our fist and say, I got this. Then there's not. Will man turn? Will he come to God? So here's God's message to the nations. in uh, Beginning in chapter 18, verse 1. Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush. Oh, it must be helicopters. No, it's not helicopters. Do yourself a favor. Don't listen to crazy people. It's not helicopters. The land of whirring wings. He's, he's talking about the people from Cush, which is kind of a, 
the idea that we're going to see here in chapter 18 is God looking at the whole world. And he's going to talk about the travel through the whole world, going to and fro. But he's picturing it like the way they traveled on the Nile in Egypt. On the Nile in Egypt, they had these little boats. They're fast little boats. And you know what they called those little boats going up and down the Nile? They, they used sails, and they called the sails wings. And when they would go by, they would talk about the sound that they make going through the water, and they would say, listen to the whirring wings. I don't got to go to a helicopter. I just go to when the guy wrote it. What did it mean to him? Doesn't, isn't that what matters? What, did, what was he talking about? He's talking about the travel, going up and down the river, bringing news, traveling around, here and there. He says, they're, they're, he even says it, by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. You know what the Egyptians called the Nile River? The sea. Uh, it was close enough for them. Do you know what the, the, the Syrians and the Ethiopians called the Tigris and the Euphrates? The sea. Yeah, this is, this was, they're traveling around. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation. This is the one Chuck Mitchell used to say was us. To a nation tall and smooth. Because we're tall and smooth, right? To a people feared near and far. There's our arrogance. A nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide. Now, if you don't realize that that pretty much covers everybody, even Israel, Israel's divided by a river. You know that? The Jordan? This, this is descriptive of everyone. It's not a description of the United States of America. He's talking about swift envoys, people traveling from the ends of the earth, sent to the mightiest people imaginable, uh, a composite picture of all human greatness for all of history. But they want, he wants them to know this mighty people, mightier than anyone's ever been, is nothing before God. He's nothing before God who is working in their midst and they don't even notice him like the heat and the mist. In fact, it's, it's, this section is so interesting. Listen to verse 3. It says, all you inhabitants of the world. So that should help us, right? Where's our focus? The world. This is a picture of the world. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look, when a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus said the Lord to me, you're going to see me in the mighty storm. No, what's he say? I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine. God says, everybody's expecting me to move big. But the reality is, I move small. I'm, I'm like that little shimmer of heat you see when you look out over the, over the desert. That little, little shimmer of heat, that's me working. So imperceptible, uh, most people don't notice it. Or like the cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. I'm like that little cloud of dew. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading of branches he lops off and clears away. God says it's like, he says, he describes the way he works in the whole world, like the, 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 the heat shimmering up and the mist. And then he describes it like, and then right as the fruit is blossoming, I come through and prune some of the branches. Do a clip here and a clip there. I do a, a little pruning <clears throat> so that the flower becomes a ripening grape. He cuts off the shoots. 
the things that aren't bearing fruit with pruning hooks. And the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey and the mountains of the beasts of the earth. Everything that we look around, everything that is occurring, everything that is happening, it's all being shaped by the creator, the maker of heaven and earth. And it's not always the big thunderous roar that is God. It's just sometimes the still small voice. Isn't that what Elijah said? Just that still small voice. Here is God moving. Here is God working. When the flag is raised and the trumpet sounds, what mighty act is God going to perform? But the answer is a little disappointing. The still small voice. God is saying that the work that he does will be quiet and unassuming, but it will also be complete. He's going to accomplish what he set out to accomplish. Just like a birth in Bethlehem. No pomp or circumstance. No loud fanfare. Just a quiet group of shepherds walking through a field telling people that the world has been forever changed. By one birth, in one instance, in a small place of the world. That's how God moves. God won't act too soon, and he won't act too late. God is always exactly on time. And he's going to produce a victory. Here in Isaiah, we're going to see an example of it. He's going to produce a victory that no human being could have done. No human being could do. God's going to declare it. And the hasty departure of Shennacherib and by the burial of 185,000 troops overnight. He's going to say, hey, I moved and you didn't even see. You didn't even notice. In verse 7 it says, At that time tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from all the people, tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, the Mount Zion. The place of the name of the Lord of hosts. What's God saying? One day all the nations are going to come to me. One day all the nations are going to come. They're going to hear the call. They're going to draw near to the Lord. What's his, what's his point? What's his purpose? He's saying, look, to whom will you compare me? This is God's word in Isaiah forty twenty five. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him? God is incomparable. There's nobody like him. Nobody like him able to save. Nobody like him mighty as he, who by just doing the little things is sovereignly watching over every piece of his creation that he put together. It's a big God. And he's the only one truly worthy of our hope and faith. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word as we study your word this evening, Lord God. I pray that you would just help us to see, Lord, that all scripture fits. All The whole story is knit together. It's not a bunch of separate chunks. It's one story, God's redemption of man. Man's fall begins in the beginning. He's corrupted and rebellious. And so God begins to work and to woo and to call and to move, and to shape. And one day he says, I'm coming. 
But in the meantime, He's given us opportunity to share the truth of of who He is, the value that He has. And I pray that we could all recognize the value that God has and bow the knee, (coughs) acknowledge He's the greatest. In fact, Scripture would declare that when someone stands in judgment before God, they're not going to complain when they walk away. They're going to say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Because every man's going to stand before the one single greatest being ever. None like him, none to compare to him. And when they stand before him, they're going to acknowledge the value of being with him for eternity. So God, you shake the things that we hold on to that aren't you. So that all we'll cling to is you. So that we have what we need. And when we see you face to face, it's to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest, into your master's happiness, into the life he has planned for you. God, I I pray that you be glorified and magnified. And I pray that we would recognize and understand that truly you are that upon which all else is built. God, we pray, be glorified and magnified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.